Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedrico and Daniel Coca. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. Our guest today is Kavitha Baratake. Kavitha is a software engineer turned real estate investor, landlord, and wealth strategist. After immigrating to the U.S. in 1998, she found herself using her tech background to trade options and stocks online. Quickly realizing the risk in the dramatic highs and lows of the market, Kavitha made a cautious yet deliberate decision to purchase a home in Austin, Texas, and she's been an active real estate investor ever since. In this episode, we discuss her journey of quitting her full-time job, building a portfolio of properties, being a single mom, and using her gifts to give back to and educate her community. Kavitha also advises listeners on what she's learned as a landlord, in addition to how she balances her various positions on top of being a parent. She's developed a passion for financial education and empowerment that she shares with both her consulting clients and youth in her community as a representation of what true wealth means to her. If you're interested in learning more about investing, especially in Texas, or you have a passion to empower the younger generation, this episode will leave you feeling equipped to take action and make a difference. Hi, Kavitha. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ed. I'm happy to be here. Excited to be here, actually. Yeah, I am too. I've been looking forward to having this this conversation with you. I've been watching, you know, some of the posts that you share on LinkedIn, and one of the the big reasons I wanted to have you on is your journey through real estate and becoming a real estate investor. You are coaching people in active and passive investing. And my favorite part is this work that you're doing, this passion um, around education and especially educating teens and children as it relates to finances. So I'm really excited to, to have this overall conversation with you. So to get started, you know, maybe, uh, you know, I've already given a little bit of an intro about you, but I would love to know, how did you get started in, in real estate doing what you're doing today? Sure. So like a lot of people, I was only exposed to the stock market being here. I moved uh, to the U.S. from India in 1998. I went to grad school here and then started working in the tech industry. So my, my background is all computer science degree in, um, in bachelor's as well as master's. So I had nothing at all, no knowledge of real estate to start with. And I worked in tech for almost about was it 2009? And I was trading options for a while and I traded stocks and just got tired of the whole ups and downs of trading. And uh, right about the time I was trading options and I had some big wins and uh, some big losses, I realized that I had to take my money off the table before I lost it all. So I bought my first house in Austin and I looked around me and I said, where am I going to put the money right now? And it was 
real estate was in the dumps, right? Like we were getting houses at $54 a square foot. I'm like, okay, that makes sense to me. It's not even the build cost. It's lower than replacement value. So I bought my first house in Austin in uh, 2009. And really, I think my fear was more about getting into that rental business because I didn't want to be dealing with tenants. I don't want to lose my lifestyle and have people calling me all times of the day with broken ACs. I really imagined it to be a nightmare. So I really didn't rush in. I took one little baby step and I wanted to kind of do a sanity check. And then I went in for another house and it took a while, right? Like I I was really slow and very deliberate about it, partly because I'm a single mom. I have been a single mom for the last 14 years. So I didn't want to suddenly have like a vacancy of eight houses or 10 houses and a mortgage payment for all of them. (laughs) So I think there was a fear of that as well. Uh, Part of those two things, kept me a little bit slow and steady. But over time, I got more confident and I saw that, okay, vacancy isn't really a big issue, Uh, maybe a month here. I mean, really, I've never had vacancy for more than a month in most of my houses. So because Austin market's just been great. And of course, as the property started appreciating, I got equity, I tapped into the equity, refinanced, got more houses. So it was sort of like a stair step, you know, step by step to the point that I said, okay, I really don't seem like I can scale this up anymore. Like, I don't want to deal with another tenant. I got to that point and I uh, then started looking at multifamily and, you know, the rest is history. I'm here uh, full-time in real estate today. Wow. And so are you full-time, you've left behind single family rentals and you're just doing multifamily now? Uh, I wouldn't say I'd left behind. I actually still have my multi-fa- single family portfolio in Austin. And thank God for that. Austin has been on a crazy bull run. <laughs> so I didn't sell my single family. I actually was selling someone. I barely sold any real estate. I just bought real estate. Yeah. So yeah. I am just starting to get into selling some of the multifamily we uh, bought with investors. And I think I just sold one property, one single family that I owned, but eventually I think I'll sell them. It's just, I'm just timing it for a 1031 exchange. Got it. Got it. What do you find the difference is between the yields on your single family and on multifamily? In multifamily is more within our control. I feel like uh, single family, you're always relying on the market to tell you what the price is, right? The comps. So in that sense, Although if I look at a 10 year period, my single family's obviously done really well in Austin, but if I had put the same in multi, I think I would have gone a lot further just because I think money stagnant becomes sort of money that's not growing, right? And I think with a single family home, there is a ceiling that you hit. And uh, I think I've kind of gotten there. I feel like I need to kind of recycle that money and move it into something else. Besides the management aspect, I find that multifamily is just much easier to manage given the scale. And then I'm not sitting here dealing with tenants. So for me, that's a huge win because time is money at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And so you have property managers that are managing 
your multifamily buildings? Absolutely. Yeah. So most of the multifamily that I'm in is at least 70. I think the minimum is 76 units. Everything is up from there. So I'm not in any deal that is not, that doesn't have full-time property management. And the single families, I still manage myself, partly because I'm a control freak. Mm-hmm. I don't believe, I have tried property management companies and I've just been so disappointed with the quality of tenants I've gotten. And this, I just go back to, hey, you know what? I'll just do it myself until I'm ready to sell them. Yeah, that, you know, it's interesting. We at, at Alpha, we've started to work with, with a sponsor on single family rental portfolio, but in the realm of like hundreds and they're managed professionally, which is a little more similar to multifamily management yeah. as opposed to like one or two or even like nine, you know, nine or 10, but it's I incredible. That working. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. You're good. You're good. I was just thinking about you were buying at $54 a square foot in 2009. What, what is the square footage like today per price? It's more, per like, uh, it's more like 180, 250 wow. at least. Yeah. I wow. think pretty much the entry point in Austin now has become closer to 350, 400, just like bare, bare bones entry level. Home. Yeah. Yeah. And I bought my first house for 98,000. <laughs> <laughs> it was crazy I can't even imagine I'm like why did I buy more but then of course you know you don't know what you don't know and you're scared and there's fear right there's fear there's uncertainty so I think I really needed that time to learn and grow so it took it took time and I'm glad I took my time yeah as it relates to to fear and starting because like you said you started slow and I think that's like the best approach for anyone doing anything that's new especially when it is money especially when it's hard-earned money you know how did you you know obviously you you're very cautionary or you're very careful about about how you how you do things when was the moment where you said I'm good. Like I can, like the fear is gone and you took a a bolder step. Like what moment was that? I'd say probably right about, I think probably four or five houses in. I remember I sold, I had a property in India against my mom's advice. I sold that property because it was all cash in India. It was very hard to mortgages in India were like 12% at that time. So I didn't really get a mortgage and I just bought a house in India about 2009 as well. So that house I sold around 2012, I brought it back here and bought four houses with it because of the power of leverage, right? right? Like you can leverage and put 25% down versus having all cash. So my mom wasn't super happy about that, but hey, you know what? I'm happy I did that because that worked out really well. And I think at that point, the fear was gone because I was like, okay, I got the money and I'm just going to, I know this is a good decision and I'm not going to, I didn't have any worries about regretting that decision. Yeah. And, and that's great. Thank you. Yeah. 12%. I mean, we can't even imagine these days we can't even imagine 4% interest rates on, at least on like on the residential side. So I wanted to ask you, since you started doing this and now you're doing multifamily for yourself, but you're also doing it with and for other people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I moved over to what, what we call active investing, where we are actually bringing other people into syndications where we buy apartment complexes. So I did, I started doing that in 2019. I, started educating myself on becoming an investor uh, in multifamily about 2015, I think 2015, 2016, 
oh, was it 2015? Yeah, I started investing in Multi myself, but I didn't feel like I was ready to take other people's money until I learned enough on my own. And about 2019 is when I said, oh, okay, yeah, I think I get the hang of this and I understand it and I feel pretty confident about it. So I got into my first syndication in February 2019, where I brought in investors into one of the, our first deal, my first deal was in Atlanta, Georgia, and we're actually selling it. It's on the market right now. And we've, we've already got an offer through, so, yeah. And do you... Um... So 2019 is not too long ago. So you had basically like a year and then we had the pandemic. How did you, how did you approach the communication with your investors and, you know, like how did your, your business, I guess, like, how did that go from, you know, just starting to get into it? Like you're ramping up, like, like I'm curious, you know, how you went through that and, and how you managed it. Yeah, definitely scary. <laughs> I was scared. So I think part of it was I quit a really good tech job. You know, I mean, tech jobs are pretty well paying. Everything was going well. There was no reason for me to quit. And I think it came down to managing my time, right? I either had to go all in or I just was, I was feeling like I was doing a good job of anything, right? Like I was trying to do this real estate sponsorship and I was managing my single family homes parenting my daughter, working a full-time job. It was just way too much. So I was in over my head and I finally quit in June, 2019. And right after like six, seven, nine months into it, the pandemic hit and I really sat back and I'm like, okay, did I totally do this wrong? <laughs> I should have waited, right? Definitely was a setback. Everything was shut down March, April, May, June. So I think one of the real really good things that I got hooked on to was watching two people during the, actually three, I'd say, during the pandemic that really helped me instead of focusing on what I couldn't do, what I could do during the pandemic. So that really changed my perspective, not just about the pandemic, but about managing a business in general, uh, especially through a crisis, right? One of it was John Maxwell. And incidentally, I had met him summer of 2019 in Vegas, I went to a conference there and he was speaking. And so I started watching him regularly on YouTube and uh, Facebook. And uh, one of these things that he did during the pandemic was called Leadership Through a Crisis series. And I was just blown away, right? Like that was exactly, you know how sometimes you just hear this message and you're like, this is exactly what I needed to hear right now. It was one of those moments for me. And I just kept watching him and he talked about how to transform the crisis into an actual, how do, what, what do I change about the way I'm doing business? And obviously I wasn't going out and buying any real estate at that time. So I looked at that time as it's a foundation for me to set uh, up for when things will open back up again. Right. And other thing, which we had brought out, which was was always passionate about and sort of neglected because I got so busy with working and doing deals is educating children on finances. So I started this in my daughter's middle school. I started doing this financial education series for the kids where I'd go in every Tuesday evenings and have an after-school club, a financial literacy club. So I would play this game called Cashflow. You know, Robert Kiyosaki has designed this game called Cashflow. 
I put a game in and then, then I talk to them about something that they have learned from the game or something relevant that they could, you know, that would be useful for them, which I think it really came down to what did I wish I had known sooner? Because that's been my constant, I'd say something that I wished, I came from a foreign country and there are a lot of things I didn't know about the financial systems here, right? And so it was like, I don't know what a credit score was. We didn't have anything like that in India. So I just really started from scratch. Like I was 23 years old. I didn't know anything about anything. <laughs> so I'd never lived alone before I came to the US. So I think I wish I had gotten a head start and access to some education. So I kind of put that in play when I put on my thinking hat and said, what could I do differently that will help these kids and maybe anybody else, kids or adults, get a head start. The other motivation was being a landlord and personally working and looking at credit reports. I realized that even people who grew up here don't know anything about finances. <laughs> you know, you see the credit report and you realize, oh my God, so many people mismanage money here. The one good foundation that I did get from growing up in my country is, is that we were we had a saving mentality kind of baked in. You just can't get away from it, right? It's a part of the culture. So that always helped me, you know, no matter what situation I was, I always had as even as a broke student, you know, kind of had some savings tucked away. But I think I didn't know much else and I wish I wanted to learn more. And over the course of the years, I did learn more, but I wanted to put that all together into like, okay, this is a financial, or I think it was, it ended up being a 13 week series. So I had done it in my daughter's middle school. Sorry for the long winded discussion here. <laughs> no, it, no, it's good. It's, it's good. It's, it's, I wanted to talk about this, about this anyway, you've touched on a lot of, on a lot of points, but please finish. And then I want to touch in on some of the things that you've sure. done. So, yeah, I think it came from there and from the middle school education I've done, I reached out to a few teachers and asked them, Hey, how could I do this? I want to pull this, push this out. And one, my daughter was sitting at home and I knew a lot of kids were sitting at home and I'm like, okay, there's an audience right there. They have nothing to do. And their parents wish that they were doing something productive with their time. Right. So why not reach out to them, do some kind of webinars. So that was sort of like the thing. And I tried to organize something literally within two weeks and most teachers that I reached out to, and I really wanted to put something comprehensive together. They said, it's not possible. They just walked away from it. They said, oh, it's not going to happen. I said, never mind. I'm just going to do it, you know, and just went for it. And I, said, I started preparing things week to week because I knew I couldn't have 13 weeks of content in two weeks. So I just kept doing it week to week. And I had an outline in mind because I had done that education before. So I rolled it out. To cut the long story short, I think what that I didn't realize at that time, but that 13 weeks helped me ground myself as much as it I'm sure helped the kids. And interestingly, not intentionally at all, a lot of these kids' parents became my investors. So what it taught me in retrospect is business is everywhere, right? You don't have to rely on a certain kind of marketing. I mean, there could be so many ways to reach a potential client. And in my case, a lot of these kids' parents are now my investors. So I wasn't looking for business. I was just looking to teach kids, but the business happened. So those three months were probably very productive in retrospect where I saw nothing happening. Everything was just budding, you know, and I have this analogy I like to use. You know, like when there's a seed under the plant, under the soil, you don't see anything happening, right? You can't keep digging it up. You don't see anything happening, but this 
it's so much growing and it just takes a little bit of time for it to hit, you know, get out of the soil and actually see, see the sprout outside. So I feel like a lot of times in our lives are like that, where you want action, you want things to happen and it doesn't, and you feel frustrated, but really think about it as that, hey, you're giving that seed some time under <laughs> the soil, it's going to come out and you're going to see the fruits a little later. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a fantastic analogy. You can't dig up the seed to see if it's it's growing because essentially, you know, in in real life, that would probably kill whatever whatever is growing. I love that analogy. That you've touched on on so many interesting on so many interesting points. And the first the first one, and I'm sure I'm sure Daniel can appreciate this one too, is the lack of overall understanding of credit scores and finances. Just you know, not even in, in children, but, but in adults, I'm, my parents are, are immigrants from Italy and I learned about saving through them, but they didn't know about investing. They knew how to save. And yeah. those are two parts that need to go together. Cause saving is fine. I mean, in the seventies and the eighties, saving was great, right? Because of the interest rates that you could get. But then when things started to shift and you don't have, and if you don't know about investing, then your savings are starting to erode because of because of inflation. But the 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 way the economy is set up here and the culture here is a culture of consuming. And that's what is actually sort of taught or that that's the environment that that exists here. So if we don't have the tools through education and knowledge to understand these things, we're not going to know better. So like you, I had, I had that where I grew up saving and understanding saving. And then luckily I went into financial services when I was 18 and I learned that I learned a lot there. And I'm really lucky to grateful to my young self to have done that because otherwise at, at this point in my life, I don't know that I would have really understood finances and investing and credit scores and what it takes to kind of succeed in, in a certain way. So I really appreciate, you know, I really appreciate that. I don't know, Dan, how did you grow up around like savings and, and money? Yeah, I think similarly in that savings was way more important than investing, at least from, uh, you know, from, from my parents. I don't even see that now with them as they, you know, kind of transition into, into retirement and they're so hesitant to invest their money. You know, they just like having it in there, right. As, as somewhat of a, a safety net. And then I think, you know, through my own life and like coming out of law school and just basically lighting money on fire for, you know, five to seven years until we started off and realizing that was probably not a great move as you're now making $0 a year. And so, you know, nevertheless, the lessons I feel like that I've really started to appreciate have probably been over the last 10 years or so where I've thought, okay, like now I'm, I'm really thinking about building wealth. In my mind, I always used to think, I'm going to enter a job. I'm going to make a lot of money and I don't really have to worry about any of the other stuff. Like it'll just figure it out. And I think that's a mentality a lot of people have, but the reality is, you know, time is important and the earlier you start, the better. And so, you know, with, with people in my family, my younger brother, you know, my, my brothers-in-law, it's start as early as possible, you know, start putting these things into place. Cause when you're my age, you're going to have a nice little, you know, nest egg set up for yourself that like I didn't have because I didn't think about it that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, interesting. So, so my husband is like that too. I mean, he didn't come out of like working in college with, 
with savings, I did because I like, I went a different, I just went a different direction with my understanding of it. But what I was thinking about when you were saying that, Dan, is that it's also never too late, right? Like just because we, we missed it, you know, let's say we missed it in our twenties or our thirties, it's, it's never too late. And I think that's one of the reasons why regardless, and I know Kavitha, when you do your education piece, like you also educated their parents clearly because they became like your customers, but for anyone listening, like it's not like, it's not too late. It's never too late to start. And even though in the beginning it might seem slow and like, oh, my distributions, or if you're in the stock market, it might look like it's not going that fast. But at a certain point, there's like a tipping point where you look and you say, my God, like I'm doing really well. And then it starts to, it really starts to compound. So, you know, that that's just something that was coming through. And, and yes, like, like Dan, like when, when you and Fark started alpha, it was startup mode and, you know, us too, Kavitha, like we same, like during the pandemic was really slow you know, for those, for those few months. And we doubled down on a different form of value in education, which was really communicating a lot to our investors and, and with our sponsors and making sure that, that we were communicating very clearly. And that really helped us because then when the market started to open back up and things picked back up, we've basically been nonstop since end of July of, of last year, how's your, how's your kind of like deal flow been looking since, you know, since this education piece? Yeah. I mean, it's been crazy actually. So one of the things I do want to mention is that we did the same, a lot of the pandemic besides the kids education. I also did a lot of the cares act and, you know, education for the adults, because I found myself like, what is CARES Act? What are the different regular, you know, there were so many PIP programs and EIDL. So I did a lot of webinars during that time. But besides that, one of the important things is that I realized, and we did this very diligently with all our properties, is to keep the investors informed on what the properties are doing. And, you know, people were in panic mode, right, everywhere. And like, okay, is, are you guys able to pay the bills? Are the tenants paying? You know, there's so much concern and it's all valid concern. So we started doing like monthly webinars and um, keeping people updated and stress testing the deals and making sure, okay, we have enough cash and we last until like two years from now, you know? If two years from now, nobody pays us, we are in trouble, but we look pretty good. So those kinds of things. I think that also helped, helped build investor confidence uh, because there were no distributions for at least six months of last year, right? And we caught up later. But as far as deal flow um, is concerned, I think once the tap turned on in June, July last year, I've just been nonstop working on deals. So I'm kind of exhausted and I, need, I needed a breather. So my move now, I just moved houses and also, took a little break for five days away and I really was much needed. I love working on deals, but I also like to take, I think the work-life balance has become really important. So what is it that you're seeing in your current deal evaluation? And, and I'll preface this by saying, for us, the one very common theme is that pricing seems pretty crazy across the board, regardless of what market you're in, but especially if you're in a growth market like a you know, in Austin or, or Dallas or, or Phoenix or, or something like that. And so, you know, we've really only been able to find off-market deals that make sense. The number of emails we get from our partners where they say, hey, here's a deal. We think we're going to lock it in at, at 50 million. 
is there something you'd be interested in? And then two hours later, they're like, nope, pricing's now at 62 million. And they're like, oh, like, and that's not like a one-off that's been happening like every week over and over and over again. And so how do you think about finding good investments in that type of environment? Because you want to be careful not to, you know, buy into all this, you know, speculation and price increasing. Like sometimes I think like, is this, you know, cryptocurrency, like esque investor mentality. Although that's when you were saying out of P it's never too late. Like that's where I was thinking, ah, maybe, maybe it is a little too late for me on that one. But if you have money, you should invest it in cryptocurrency because it help all of us that are currently invested. Nevertheless, what are you thinking about, you know, just how do you find good deals right now? How do you weigh downside protection versus, you know, wanting to have your capital and assets that will appreciate and be a hedge against inflation? Yeah. Very long-winded question, but would, would love to get your thoughts. Sure. So one of the things is besides doing existing value-add multi, which was primarily uh, what I was doing initially, I actually got into new bills over the pandemic and this year especially, partly because I saw value that we could add. Yes, it's riskier, no doubt about that. And there were rising labor costs, rising material costs, but accounting for all those, we still came out ahead in the numbers because when you start paying 150 a door for a class C multifamily, you're looking at it go. No, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I just go build one for 160 a door or, you know, between 150 and 160 a door, especially in Austin or Dallas or, you know, a major market like that. So I think a couple of things have helped me out. I won't say I'm an acquisition expert by no means. It's not my forte, but I do have partners, good relationships with very big brokerages and they have, we've closed a lot of deals through them. And so they do bring us off-market properties. That definitely has helped us. So recently we bought a class A off-market for 183 or door, brand new. So those kind of deals have come by and we've gone in and we the occupancy was 70%, 90% today in a month and a half. So we saw a diamond in the rough there and we've gone in. There's definitely, you have to, I think there are two things, right? Uh, one is, yes, the prices have gone up, but rents are going up crazy as well, right? Phoenix market, for example, crazy rent growth, absolutely nuts. Dallas, a little bit slower, but still very substantial rent growth. We bought a property in Austin. Our rents have gone up between 400 and $471 a door. I mean, that's huge, right? Like we... I mean, it had almost justifies the price. People looked at us and said, you overpaid. And now the same people were wishing they had bought it. So <laughs> I think it's just at that point, we saw that, okay, the rents were on the market. We still were willing to pay for it. We went in at a 4.2 cap, but sometimes you just are looking at, okay, what's the upside here, right? Where do I see value? And if we see the value, we go for it. And the new bills. And so I've kind of diversified my strategy a little bit. I'm not doing all value at Malfi anymore. So I'm, I'm kind of getting more open to other investments. So I'm looking at a, a built-to-rent project, a brand new built-to-rent project now in Atlanta. So I have some partners who are primarily builders. So that kind of helps diversify a little bit. Uh, for my investors, as well as uh, for myself, you know, I started looking at other investments because I'm like, okay, wait, what multifamily shut down, but are there other investments which are still paying through a pandemic? And there were. So I think from an investor standpoint, they should look at diversification, especially as a passive. 
And value creation is so important, right? You know, if, if you bought something out of five cap in 2017 or 2018 and you didn't do anything, you could have sold it at a, a low four cap today and generated an, an excellent return, right? But today, if you buy something at that same four cap and you sell it at a five cap, you need a substantial amount of value creation in order to actually create a, a return on the, the equity that you've put into that deal. And so I think that's a really important thing for people to understand. There are parts of an investment that you can control and others that are subject to the market. And you need to be improving the things that you can control just in case the things you can't control move in the wrong direction. Yeah. And I think we always underwrite our deals to assume that we go up a hundred basis points in the reversion cap, just to make sure that, okay, in case the market goes against us, we still come out. Okay. So just funds of under, underwriting to not assume that the market will stay as great as it is today. Well, it's funny because when, you know, if you go back to 2015, we used to use kind of the typical 10 to 15 bips a year of, of cap rate expansion in your underwriting. And, and now it's like 30 bips a year on a, on a three-year hold. We're looking at 120 bips of, of cap rate expansion in our underwriting. Just things have changed dramatically, but, you know, cap rates have cr- compressed dramatically and, and they could easily go back up you know, to where they were in, you know, 2018, early 2019. And, you know, you've got to be prepared, as you said, in the event that happens that, you know, you're still able to create value. Yeah. So, so Kavitha, I wanted to quickly, you know, just touch back a little bit on the, on the education piece and would love to hear, you know, when, when you did that, what did you learn, like aside from like you, you told the story of everything that, that you got out of it, but I'm curious what you learned through teaching these kids, what, what kind of feedback did you get from them? Like, did light bulbs go off? Do you, do you think that you like changed them by teaching them? Absolutely. I think, especially a few of them, right? Luke, you could easily look at a couple of kids and go, okay, these people are just made for this, right? Like they just had an innate ability to grasp this. And there were a couple, I did this, I mean, not that I do a lot of stock market trading anymore, but I just set them up on a, you know, play trading virtual trading platform and let them play against each other, you know, get some stocks and whatever. So you could just light bulb moments for some of them go off and they're like super interested. I think though that what I did realize on the on the flip side is that a lot of them were not as interested. I think as long as it's not your own money and you start earning and making money and having to spend money, you don't realize the importance of it, right? It's just still an abstract concept even for the teenagers, right? Because someone else is giving them the money. As I think I'm starting to see my daughter getting more conscious of it as she's now doing her own business and spending her own money and going out with her own money. But I think until they get to that point, it's still a very abstract, my mom gives me money or my dad gives me money. But it was good to really at least feel like, okay, there is a seed planted, right? At the end of the day, it's just a little thought saying, okay, maybe... 10 years down the line, or even five years down when they're in college, they're going to think about, oh, wait, someone told me this. So, you know, I hope that that's the case. Um, But I do think that some kids were definitely impacted. Like I do get, I did get a lot of feedback from parents. Can I do something better? I'm sure there's always room for improvement. And one of the things I wanted to do is make it shorter segments, like maybe 15 minute segments 
talking about different topics because you realize that tension span of some kids and especially the, the generation right now with so many devices and so much going on, it's like maybe 10, 15 minutes tops. So that's something I, I intend to work on. Yeah. And do you think that in any way that the parents also learn things that they didn't know? <laughs> sure, I'm pretty sure they did. I don't think a lot of parents realize, I mean, basic things like what's an asset, what's a liability, you know, like mm-hmm. we really don't, I, I don't think I understood that until I was exposed to this whole side of the equation. And like you said, it's never too late because I started when I was 30, what is it, 33 something, when I got started in my financial journey, really. Before that, I did nothing, but I owned a house and that's about it. That was, I mean, I did some stock market investing, but very little, but that was through my 401k. So I had that typical portfolio of anybody working in a nine to five where I invested through my 401k. I had a house and that's about all my assets went, right? Yeah. So I think it was uh, it was a light bulb moment for all for a lot of these parents, and I do get that feedback constantly from my education that people are like, "Hey, I would have never known about these things," and that was really my intention. So I feel like I hit the point home. I mean, I I hit I got my goals right. I hit my goals, and I can I continue to want to do that because every time I think about what did I wish. I had known I want to kind of bring that to my investors so like that's how I think about my topic list is like what do I want to learn right now right and yeah let's let's talk about it yeah yeah and you've probably given them a topic that they can continue to grow with together like the the parents and and the kids I don't personally have children, but I I often think about what parents could do to set their kids up meant like mentally from like a knowledge-based perspective and, and mindset and some tactical things. Do you have any suggestions for parents, even just out of your own experience or anything that you learned to, to help them have those conversations and put it into action? Cause like you said, it's, it's very heady. It's very not philosophical, but it's just information. It's abstract until it's real. So what kind of, what kind of suggestions do you have for parents? So I'd say, you know, You'll be surprised how much kids actually understand if you start sharing, right? Talk about the mortgage payment. Talk about, look at a market statement with your kid together, right? Tell them, hey, why don't you take on some responsibility? Do you want to figure out how to deposit a check? Do you, I mean, it's just basic things. It doesn't have to be very complicated, right? I don't know, cash flow now, uh, the game cash flow itself was a huge one for me, right? It taught kids a lot about, how to create cash flow, what's an asset, what's a liability, just start thinking that way, right? Like kids are saying, oh, I want to buy a fancy car. Wait, if I put that on uh, Uber or Turo, I can make money off of it. It can become an asset. So I think it's a lot about training your kids to think about money differently. And maybe be the parent wouldn't have even thought about it that way, right? So I think it's, if you're educated, then you can teach your kid. But at the very least, I'd say, start making, especially around teenage time, or maybe even earlier, if you can start making kids a part of your money, uh, financial life as well, right? We teach them a lot of things and we give them a lot of education in and out of school. I mean, take them to sports and, you know, we just focus on over development of the child, but financially, I feel like 
we underfocus on the financial development uh, aspect of a child. And we just expect them to learn somehow and go to college and figure it out or something, right? So I think it's, it's a, lot, a lot of little things, right? Just sharing more information with them, making them maybe responsible for a bill or something. Get them more responsibility and they will learn. That's, that's great. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, you're right. Getting them to participate a little bit more. I was thinking about when I was little, like, like my mom would make me go up, like, like even just like depositing something with a bank teller, you know, back in those days, that, that is something that makes you feel like, you know, like really like adult ish. And I was one of those kids that always wanted to grow up really fast, but like, it made me feel like adult. (laughs) So a lot of kids want to grow up really fast, right? Like everyone who's younger wants to grow up and everybody's older wants to get, get younger. (laughs) (laughs) And I think just what you said, right. Just depositing a check, it gives them, it makes them feel empowered, right? Like, Oh, they did a cool adult thing. Right. And I think that those are little things that we can do. Like my daughter right now, she's got her own account. She, she knows how to deposit checks electronically. She got her first job. You know, I think those are all really foundational and you you can guide them while they're still at home with you. Right. Once they leave, they make their own decisions. So I think um, that's the time you have. So one of the things I did with them was, I said, go back and look at your car insurance, right? Your parents are carrying because you're going to be driving soon, especially the teenagers. So do you know what the car insurance is? Do you know what comprehensive insurance is? What collision insurance is? Most parents don't know this. (laughs) So I'm like, it's time for the parents to learn and time for the kids to learn with them, right? It's just very basic, uh, fundamental life skills, I think. As you're speaking, I've been picturing our, a teenage version of our partner, Fark, just handling my personal finances like way better than I ever could. And like, maybe that's the, the dream outcome here, right? Yes, he would have been fantastic at that. We, we, we love him. He works, he works so hard. But yeah, some people are, I mean, okay, his ability to do mental math is astonishing. I mean, I, I feel like a four-year-old when I'm having a conversation with him and I'm sure it could be, I mean, like you have a background in, I'm sure you do mental math in the same fashion. It's like magic to me because it is not how my brain works at all. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I'm very quick at mental math, but I'm not slow either. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I know people who do like this thing called Vedic math. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No. It's something it's like ass cracking. Like you can add like six digit numbers multiplies it to six digit numbers with each other like that okay (laughs) that's amazing that'll be our new challenge i'm gonna have him try that i want to see if he can do vedic (laughs) so yeah we've we have this fun thing we have this like challenge because this year we're as alpha we're we're going to probably we're set to originate more than we have in the history of our like of the firm in and of itself and so there was a challenge early on where where fark said i would take on something a little crazy and he gets three choices so i we're working on really good ones that that we can use because it's celebratory but kind of at his expense (laughs) okay sounds like fun Vedic math could be in. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm going to, I'm actually going to look into that. Um, so Kavitha, so last question that we ask all, all of our guests, and that is what does wealth mean to you? I think of wealth really as a resource that you can create. And 
do good with it, really. And I just don't mean, yes, you want to have wealth so you can live the life that you want, have freedom of choice and doing the things that you want. But I think what I've realized in my own journey is that at the end of the day, what makes me truly happy is helping others, right? In whatever fashion, whether it's through the of my time, my the money that I make, and giving back to others. And I think that really is, for me, what wealth is. And also health, right? That's another big lesson I've had to learn the last six months because as an entrepreneur, especially when I first started, I worked crazy hours, 2019, 2020. I just put in a lot of hours and that came at a cost because I was sick for the last six months, which kind of coincided with my move because I was sick in that house, ended up being mold. But anyway, long story short, I think that those six months were a real reset for me where wealth wasn't money anymore, wasn't equal to money anymore. Wealth was being healthy and just being able to do the things I wanted to do. So that was a huge wake up call. So I think the last six months and seven months, I'd say I've spent a lot of time in figuring out how I can uh, have more work-life balance, uh, what I should be working on and becoming very intentional about where I spend my time. You know, following that whole 80-20 rule, uh, it's called Pareto principle, where 80% of your business really comes from 20% of the work you put in, right? So I'm really nailing, trying to nail down what that 20% looks like for me and saying no to everything else, which comes really hard to me saying no. So <laughs> I just practicing that. So uh, to summarize, I'd say uh, wealth is not just monetary, it's it's health, it's just well-being and everything else stems from there, right? You can create money, money is just a resource. So if you're healthy, if you are able in your mind and body, everything else just comes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Thank you. Beautiful. I really appreciate that answer. And we really appreciate you coming on today and having this conversation. It was so interesting to learn what drove you to do the education piece and make this change in people's lives and your, and your story getting into real estate. So we really wish you all the best of luck with all your deals and in this crazy market. And again, really thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you, Ada Pia and Daniel. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's an honor. Like I said, Ada Pia, I followed you and especially on Clubhouse, I was like, oh my God, I have a woman crush on you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. I don't know, when you talked, I was just like, I'm just going to listen. You know, I mean, you always have so much to, so much to give the audience in every scenario. So Thank you for you uh, and being in Clubhouse. And uh, I've learned a lot. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. That means a lot to me. <laughs> right. Have a good evening. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode, and especially we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you.
And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.